If you'd like, you can open in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. It's on page 977 in your little blue pew Bible. It's Ephesians chapter 4. It's on page 977 in your pew Bible. We'll be in this chapter the next two weeks. So you can leave your Bible open in the pew and just stick it back that way (laughs) to save yourself time next week. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you um, that you promise in the Bible that your word doesn't return void. And we also read that as a father is compassionate to its children, you're compassionate to those who love you. And so we ask that these two realities would come together now, that through your living word, you would father your people. And we pray this for the sake of the name of your son. Amen. This summer, I am reading the book, Boys in the Boat. I wonder if any of you have read it. It's written by Daniel James Brown. And I'm just kind of curious, is anyone in here a rower? Anybody row in school? You know, crew this? Nobody? That's good, because then I'll sound like I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Boys in the Boat is about the University of Washington crew team, the men's eight, who not only performed well collegiately in the 1930s, but went on to compete in the Summer Olympics in 1936 in Berlin. It's a fascinating story about these men who not only make it on their college team, but make it to the Olympics. And they row, as I said, in what's called the men's eight. It's a 2000 meter race. And picture this, it's eight guys in a boat that's about 24 inches wide, all hard at the oars, with one coxswain at the front, at the helm, directing them where to go. And I wasn't aware of this, but what I'm learning through reading this is just how hard, excruciatingly hard rowing is. Here's how Brown, the author, puts it. Your body burns calories and consumes oxygen at a rate that is unmatched when you're rowing like this in almost any other human endeavor. Rowing a 2,000-meter race, which is the Olympic norm, takes the same physiological toll as playing two basketball games back-to-back, and it exacts that toll in about six minutes. What I found most inspiring about the book, however, is not just the the physical rigor, which has its own way of inspiring you, but it's, it's actually what's most inspiring is when you begin to realize that what the book's deeply about is what happens when an individual oarsman, an individual athlete, gives themselves, even you might say loses themselves, for the larger purpose of the crew and the boat. And in losing themselves for the sake of the larger whole, they actually find themselves. That's the message of the book. One um, master craftsman who's quoted often in the book, who, who writes about the selflessness of the sport, how it takes such synchronization, such teamwork, such shared vision. He says the following, he says, just as a skilled rider is said to become part of his horse, 
The skilled oarsmen must become part of the larger boat. Where is the spiritual value of rowing? The writer asks. The losing of self entirely to the cooperative effort of the crew as a whole. Have you ever experienced something like this? Have you ever had an experience where in giving yourself to something bigger than you, could be a team or a a venture or maybe a family or someone you've decided to love, in giving yourself to something bigger than yourself, you actually become yourself? You ever experienced anything like that? I have. That somehow in this deep, mysterious way, it's actually in losing ourselves, in giving ourselves to something bigger than ourselves, that we become ourselves. In the Bible, the vision of being human is not individualistic. It's not that the individual doesn't matter. Of course they do. But from the very beginning, God calls Abraham not to make him into this sterling example of independence to put up on a shelf. He calls him to be the father of a people. God raises prophets up, not to tell individual Israelites how to get their act together, but to call a people back together. Jesus comes and he doesn't just go find fishermen and say, you know what, I can make you a much better person, Peter, a better fisherman, a better guy, more self-discipline. He says, no, Peter, I'm gonna call you and your brother Andrew and in calling you, I am forcing you into community with James and John. And together in this boat, as I give you an oar, you will become whom I've made you to be. And then of course, as the Bible moves on with the great eruption of the new covenant people in Acts chapter two, what does Jesus birth by giving the spirit? A self-help guide? Here's a way that you can become a really successful individual. No, what what is created, and this just seems so obvious, like it's the water we, we swim in, but you should step back and see how profound it is. What's created is a church. It's a people. The vision again and again in the Bible is that individuals do not become themselves by themselves. They become themselves by giving themselves over to a people, a relational network, a vision that's bigger than them. Now, I wanna explore this with you the next two Sundays, this idea, because I think it's really important. And the way I wanna do it is I wanna jump into Ephesians 4. But before doing that, I just wanna put an exclamation point on how radical of a vision of being human this is. The, the, the most prevalent religion of our day, I think in our culture right now, at least the religion that's gaining the most steam, is what, what some people call, what I would call expressive individualism. And it is a religion. And we all in one way or another are getting baptized into it. And expressive individualism is, is the view that to be a whole and healthy person, what you need to do is look within and hear your voice, get in touch with your desires, and create enough space to express that. And what you need then is freedom from all constraint. You do not need another oarsman telling you how to row, let alone a coxswain in the front of the boat telling you where to row. 
You need to be free from all these constraints so you can look within and discover yourself. And it's a religion because it makes the self God. Anything that's the final authority is speaking as God. So one writer over in Australia, in kind of a cheeky Australian way, he tries to put an exclamation point on just how radical this view of being human is. And he does so, this view of expressive individualism, by taking the Lord's Prayer and recasting it as an incantation of this new religion. So the Lord's Prayer, we know, it goes like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You can see how, how kind of others-centered it is. Your will, not mine. Your kingdom, not mine. So here's, here's the Lord's Prayer, but redone according to the new religion of expressive individualism. My essence within, help me to find my authentic self. My kingdom come, my will be done. Give me today my daily spread. Forgive not my enemies as I suppress those who sin against me. Lead me not into self-doubt, but deliver me from all external authorities. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are mine now and forever. That kind of takes your breath away. But look around, listen to how leaders talk, think about the messages in sitcoms, and you will begin to see that this indeed is the religion that is capturing many of our hearts. And I, I'm a product of it. I mean, I, I see it, but it also affects me, this obsession with the self. And here's the problem with it. It gets anthropology wrong. It gets a lot of other things wrong. But we're not ourselves by ourselves. This, this teaching, it, 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 would, it would suggest that the... the the key to being a whole and healthy person is more like the mountain climber who has on their own overcome all their obstacles and conquered their mountain and stands alone in triumph. How different this is from the picture of the boys in the boat where you become yourself by losing yourself into a bigger whole where you take up an oar along your brothers and sisters and you follow a guide that is outside yourself. And somehow in doing that, you actually become yourself. In the next two weeks, I wanna suggest that the secret to the healthy life, which is in fact the biblical vision of life, is far more like being an oarsman in a men's eight than it is a self-actualized conqueror. And so to see that, I'm just going to pursue one idea with you over the next two weeks. This is the single idea and I'm going to argue for it. In two weeks, I want you to be convinced of this. And the idea is this. The shape of the Christian life is congregational. The shape of the Christian life is congregational. By congregation, I simply mean that local gathering of Christians that climbs in its little local boat with its different roles and gifts, getting at its oar, following the spirit of Jesus speaking through that boat about where it's supposed to row. That's what I mean by congregation. So the shape of the Christian life is not autonomous, it's not individualistic, 
It's not the lone hero. The shape of the Christian life is congregational. Now, to see this, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. Now, the the book of Ephesians is written by Paul. Ephesians is the high watermark of the Bible's teaching on the church. Paul wrote 13 letters. Paul was a missionary who planted churches. And in Ephesians, the term church comes up more frequently than in any of his other letters. And across Ephesians, you see Paul's vision for the individual Christian life become irreducibly intertwined in his understanding of the church. To use fancy language that I probably shouldn't use, I call it ecclesial anthropology, church-shaped people. And you can see this just, just in a few phrases in Ephesians where Paul says things like he describes Christians as joined together, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, joined together, being built together, or in Ephesians 4.25, where he refers to us as members one of another. And I want to look at this idea specifically in Ephesians 4. Now, Ephesians is six chapters. You can break it into two parts, one through three, four through six. And when you pick up in chapter four, Paul moves from high theology to everyday practical living. So he's concerned in the second half of the book with how should you live based on all these things about God and Christ I just told you. And he opens chapter four in verse one of chapter four by simply saying, I exhort you, Paul, as a prisoner of Jesus, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. When the Bible, when the ancient writers use that language, walk in a manner worthy, they're talking about your life. Walking was a common analogy, you see it's in the Psalms, about a whole life. So Paul's saying, okay, Based on everything I just told you, you're saved by faith and grace. God came to you in Jesus. Your sins are atoned for. He's saying, now here's how you should live. Now, he doesn't go on to say, here's how you should live. Here's some advice for how to conduct your personal life. Here's how to have a great, successful job. No, he comes right out of the gate into a communal vision. Notice what he says. This is still verse one and two of chapter four. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Verse two, here he puts some flesh on that idea. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Bearing with one another. In other words, Paul's just assuming that the Christian life is going to mean you're being part pulled into this community and you're gonna bear with one another. And now through chapter four, what I'll show you the next two weeks, is Paul begins to not just tell us that the shape of the Christian life is communal or congregational, he shows us two different ways that this is the case. So in the second half of chapter four, this is next week now, From verses 17 through 32 of Ephesians 4, Paul will say that the congregation shapes the individual's identity. You see, in chapter 4, Paul's talking about taking off the old self and putting on the new self, the self, and then he shows us how that self is only understood and actualized in the community. So next week, the congregation shapes our identity. This week, however, in the first half, of Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 16, Paul's focus not so much on identity as he is on growth. This section is all about growing up in Christ. He wants us, verse 13 and 14, 
to be mature. He says, grow up into full manhood, adulthood, the full stature of Christ. Verse 14, he says, don't be like a child tossed to and fro by human cunning and every wind of doctrine, but grow up, be built up. So that's the focus of the section we'll look at today, which will suggest, which I think argues, that if the shape of the Christian life is congregational, you'll see today that the congregation is how you grow. The shape of Christian growth and maturity is communal, it's congregational. Let me show you how this works. So first, I just wanna point out that the themes of growth and the themes of togetherness are interlinked in this section of Ephesians. I wanna show you that. And then I'm gonna show you two specific ways Paul says the life of the congregation helps us grow, okay? So first, the shape of Christian growth, just, just showing you here how growth and togetherness are interrelated. So in Ephesians 4, from verses seven through 11, Paul gives us this rare window into the divine design of the church. You ever wonder how this thing works, whose idea it was? Just read Ephesians 4, verse 7 through 11. It's a picture of Jesus having been raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, and Jesus is giving gifts in the form of leaders to shape these communities. Picking up at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Skipping to verse 10 now. He who descended, he's talking about Jesus in his incarnation. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So here's the first thing Paul's saying. Jesus ascended and he's giving gifts of specific leaders. Now, he's giving these to, to, to create the church. Now, now, I grew up thinking, maybe you think this, that yeah, these are the people you hire to do the ministry, right? Like you guys pay me and then I do the ministry. It's like, Sam, are you helping the poor this week? Come on, that's what we hired you to do. There's a, there's a sense where we can think that there's these hired ministers that do the work, but that's not what Paul says is the divine design. I want you to notice as we move into verse 12 that these leaders, teachers, shepherds, apostles, they're actually given to equip the saints. Now equip means train, prepare, and the saints means all the Christians for the work of ministry. So he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, verse 11 into verse 12, for, excuse me, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. Now, another super helpful thing about verse 12 is if you ever wonder like, okay, what's the work of ministry? This actually gives you a very helpful answer. Do you see it there? It's like the work of ministry, equal sign. This is what it is, building up the body of Christ. That means in the minds of the New Testament leaders, the order of first priority is the health of the local church. This is not to say that the local church is the horizon of the Christian's work. We know that because Paul goes out doing missions everywhere. 
It's just making the point that the local church becomes the tangible expression of the truth of the gospel to your neighbors. It's not just a sending pad, like you train people and then they go out and do the work of ministry. The church itself is doing the work of ministry by displaying the truth of the gospel through the quality of its community. Now, Paul goes on. I hope you're tracking with me here. Okay, that was verse 7 through 11. Here's the divine architecture. God gives teachers and shepherds and so forth to equip the saints for the work of ministry, which is building up the church. Okay, what, okay, Paul, what exactly does building up the church mean? Does that mean growing in quantity? Interestingly, through verses 12 through 16, quantity does not seem to be his focus. It's quality. Paul seems imminently concerned with the church growing up. So through the rest of this section, it's all grow up to mature adulthood. Don't be infantile anymore. Together, come on, build yourselves up. So you see, a church, we can all be Christians, but we can be more mature as a church or less mature. It's just one of the things we just continue to see in the Bible. Now I want to show you how this theme of the community, togetherness, and the building up of the body Let me just show you how linked they are. This is verses 15 and 16. Paul has just said, look, don't be pushed around. Don't be immature. Don't be infantile. Verse 15, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see the linking there. Paul is not just talking about random growth. It's growth when he says each part is joined and held together. He says working properly. Paul's using an image from anatomy. It's a very common image in the ancient world. He's talking about how a body works. And he's just making the obvious point that bodies have lots of different parts, hands, feet, eyes, ear, noses. And he's saying for a church to mature, all these parts have to work together. So togetherness and growth are interlinked in Paul's mind. Now there's two interesting insights to draw here. Number one is just that every part matters. So everyone's kind of like, well, I hope I get to be the bicep in the church, right? Or the mouth. Paul's saying every part is essential. So some some people may be like an artery through which nutrients pass in the body. So through your quiet prayers, nutrients are passing through our body and nobody really notices, but it's happening every time you're among us. Some of you may be more like part of the nerve system so that you help the body communicate and feel So you help the brother who by nature isn't very empathetic. You help him feel the pain of this sister over there. You say, hey, she's feeling this. I want you to get in touch with that. You pass communication through the body. Some of you may be more like a ligament. And and you help the body move well. Your cautiousness, your wisdom helps us not go too fast, but stay in joint at the right pace. So the first thing to just point out is that in the church, for it to grow, every, every member is needed. 
God divinely calls us into particular local churches according to his own profound design. But the second insight that I think that struck me more, even more so, is with the goal of growth. I think you could be listening to this sermon and you could think, okay, I agree with you to this point that other people help me grow. So it's like, I wanna get in shape, I'll join an exercise class because having other people working out helps me work out better. But in that scenario, the community is still all about my growth. Like I go to the class with the trainer so I can get gains. But Paul is not focused on individual growth here primarily. He's focused on the growth of the entire body. Notice how he puts it. When every part's working together, makes, this is verse 16, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. I mean, imagine if the oarsman training to be in the men's eight started to say things like, you know, I know there's eight guys in the boat, but I'm about my own time. All the other guys are slow. It doesn't matter. Look how fast I am. That would be ridiculous. That's not the point of the boat. The boat isn't there for you to measure your own time. You're only as successful as the whole. Paul is saying that if you desire to grow, like if you do your um, New Year's goals or you sit down, you're like, this is how I want to better myself this year. And maybe you say something like, you know, I'd really like to become better in the area of wisdom. Biblical wisdom. I want to read a proverb every day and apply it to my life. You know what Paul would say? He'd say, fine, but I can do you one better, buddy. Paul would say, I want you to join a local church and I want you to attend as often as you possibly can. And I want you to pray that God would introduce you to one person in that church. And I want you to make it your goal for the next six months to help that person grow in biblical wisdom. So you take your proverb and you call them up or you text them and say, hey, based on what's going on in your life, I wanna tell you how the proverb about the sluggard is applicable. For you and for me, brother, I wanna encourage you by this. Paul says, if you begin to make that shift, you will become much more like Jesus. Why? Because the son of man didn't come to serve himself but to serve others. So that's just the first point. There's this deep interlocking of Paul's vision of Christian growth and the means of the congregation and the growth of the congregation. So, I mean, you see it there. You can tell me after the service if you think I'm wrong, but the shape of the Christian life is congregational because the congregation is the context of Christian growth. Now, Paul gives us a little more detail. He tells us two ways, kind of two tools, that the congregation uses upon and on itself to help it grow. The two tools are stated side by side in verse 15, and you could just you, you could sum them up as, as the church has a, a tool of teaching truth and practicing love. So truth and love. Let me show you this. Look at verse 15. Paul says, speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way. So the main verb there is grow up. Speaking truth is the way the growth happens. I'm gonna take each of these one at a time. Speaking truth, then love. How, how, does that, how does that make a congregation grow? 
Well, the word speaking the truth there in verse 15, it's actually just one word. We translate it speaking the truth, but it's one word and you could literally translate it truthing. We are a truthing community. Now that means more than just saying we don't lie to each other. It also means more than just saying we're authentic. Like, yeah, we're authentic, man. We just say it like it is. We're real with each other. It means way more than that. When Paul uses this word truth in relation to speech, he always means the gospel. That's what the truth is for Paul. Paul's saying we speak the gospel to one another. A lot of times we think as Christians, well, the gospel's there for evangelism. And then we get into the church and we kind of move past that into these like extra super technical Christian doctrines. Paul's like, no, no, speak the gospel to one another. This means in, in the way we communicate with each other, texting, conversations when we meet and pray or over coffee, we're asking, we're trying to press past platitudes or niceties and saying, how can I apply the fact that in Jesus, God is totally for this person forever. How can I apply that to the fears they're having? You know, I can't possibly think of all the application points for a sermon to make it helpful for you. I mean, even if you guys gave me three hours to preach, I wouldn't be able to think of all the application points. You know why that is? Because you're supposed to apply it to each other. You're supposed to go out for lunch and start truthing each other. Hey, based on what I heard in that sermon, let me make the application. You probably shouldn't watch that TV show. Well, the preacher didn't say anything about not watching that show. Yeah, but I'm saying it to you, right? That's the hand-to-hand -hand combat, the life together that Paul's picturing the church do. Now, now, let me just emphasize why this is necessary inside the context of the congregation. Couldn't it be that we just go out and find truth on the internet we like and share it with each other? How do you know which truth to share? In God's economy through the Bible, he appoints a people. He does it in the Old Testament with Israel, then he does it with the church. He appoints a specific people to whom he gives the authorized truth, the Holy Scriptures. And then he appoints people within that community, Jesus calls them shepherds and teachers in verse 11, to be stewards of the truth. This is why Paul says things like, when he's talking to Titus, he says, if somebody desires to be an elder, a presbyter, that's what I am, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The local church, when it's well-ordered, not just thrown together based on someone's whim, but it's, when it's well-ordered, attentive to the word of God, to the traditions of God's people. The local church is that one place on earth where God has said my authorized word will be handled by authorized ministers there. That's why you need to be in the congregation so you know you're truthing with the right truth. Now this doesn't mean the minister is the beginning and end of truthing. Remember this says the ministers equip the people. But this just means the congregation guards the deposit and helps all the saints know what the truth is, what the Holy Scriptures are, what they say, so they can truth one another. 
It's like the local church is like the FDA approval or like Michelin starring systems on a restaurant to say, yeah, this is the truth. This is what you wanna be applying to one another so you grow. That's how the truth works. Paul says speaking the truth in love. What does it mean by that? And this is the last point. How does, how, how does that mean? What is, what is different about that? Why does Paul add love? He puts it in verse 15 and he bookends verse 16 with it, speaking the truth in love. You know, you can, you can know all the facts about something and have it not really change you at all. You can know all the stuff about the historical Jesus. You can memorize a catechism and you cannot be a Christian. You know, imagine um, a foreign exchange student. You know, you're, you're, you're a junior in high school. A foreign exchange student shows up at your school and for some reason they don't know what basketball is, but they're fascinated with it. And they say, I wanna learn all about it. So you say, well, go to the library. They pick up a book all about the history, who Naismith is, all the rules. They memorize it. They're super bright. And before you know it, they could beat your star player in a quiz about basketball. They know everything. They know how far the three-point line is from the basket, how wide a court is, how much a basketball weighs, all those things. However, if they've never actually shot a ball, are they a basketball player? Just because they know how far the three-point line is from the basket, does that make them a three-point shooter? You only become a basketball player by being put in the warp and woof of a game, under pressure, with the defense, listening to a coach, learning how to work with teammates, learning what it feels like to play when you're exhausted. Friends, the Bible calls us to be people of virtue. And so we study things. We read C.S. Lewis's book on the four loves so we know all about love. We put up on our social media our favorite Bible verses, love your enemy. But I think the Holy Spirit is saying to us through this passage, oh yeah, when you get on the court, can you hit a shot? The local church, the people of God doing life together, it's where we practice being Christians. It's where we learn to love. It's where we learn what it's like to serve others. And we realize, man, it's a far cry from memorizing a Bible verse that says, love your enemies. It's a far cry moving from that to actually bearing up with a person in my small group that I don't really like. And Jesus is saying to you, yeah, that's why the shape of Christian growth is not digital. It's embodied. The shape of Christian growth is not your social media feed. It's not what you read. It's the people you love. And virtues, friends, they're extremely hard to cultivate. You know, Christianity is like learning a skill. So within this church, brothers and sisters, the young people who come in, they need to be apprenticed to someone. They need an older saint to show them this is what it actually looks like to rejoice in suffering. They need older saints to say, this is what it looks like to have faith, not for a weekend, but for a decade. This is what it looks like to praise God in the face of loss. We need each other to walk in and say, look, I I'm trying to operate faith in my life, but it's so hard. And we need another brother or sister to say, let me show you how to believe. Let me show you how to do it, what it looks like day in and day out. The shape of the Christian life is congregational because it is through the congregation's persistent teaching ministry 
and context of calling us to love that we actually grow up and become like Christ. I'll close with this story. Um, I've never rode outside of an erg machine and I don't even know if that counts. Um, But I got to watch a race once. A dear friend of mine was in a really significant race. This was in England on the River Thames. And I, I went to watch and it was a horrible day, gray, rainy, cold, and windy. It's just miserable. So, you know, you got your parker on your hood up. It's like, this is terrible. And you're waiting forever on the river for people to come. And, and you see the boats coming finally. And this was a men's aid. And as they're approaching, you can only see the backs of the rowers, right? Except for the cocks and you only see their backs. You know, they're just the muscles all out and necks red, just going at it. And then as they go by, you kind of look and you see their faces. And as I thought about this scene, I thought, you know, Any one of these brothers individually on a day like that in England probably wouldn't even have wanted to go for a walk outside. But if you drop that brother in an eight in the boat together and you would have looked at their faces, you would have known that these brothers would have rode through a hurricane together. The shape of the Christian life is not individualistic. It's communal. The shape of the Christian life is the congregation. I hope you'll join one. I hope you're in one. And I hope you'll pick up your oar. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you that you do not call us to walk alone. And I pray that this church, the Falls Church Anglican, by its many members, speaking the truth in love, would grow up in every way every way, Lord. I don't know what all those ways are, but we give you permission to make the every way come about into the full stature of Jesus Christ. Amen.